Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. All right, we're in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, so if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, otherwise you can follow on the screen as you can see over there. Now, as we've been looking, this whole entire section from chapter 10 through to chapter 13 is about Paul defending his ministry against false apostles. There are these false apostles who've crept into the church, they're false teachers, and what we've seen is that Paul is very personal. What he writes about here is very personal, he's passionate, and it's quite penetrating to to see at what lengths he will go to because he really does love this church. His integrity has been called into question. Um, His loyalty has been attacked. His love for the church has been doubted. And so he's pushing back on all of these fronts. He's pushing back, showing how he was not a burden to the churches and how actually he's suffered for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul has been boasting. And and remember last week we spoke about this is quite a strange turn of events. He's actually been boasting in his own works, in his own experiences. And he continues to do that today in chapter 12. And so he's doing it with a little bit of tongue in cheek. We need to remember this. He's uncomfortable with what he's doing. He's uncomfortable with this approach. It's out of character for him. And the only reason it's possible is because it's for the benefit of the Corinthians. He wants the Corinthians to benefit from what he's about to say. So follow with me from verse 1 through 6. He says, I must go on boasting. So that's where he started last week in chapter 11. It's just a kid crying. You'll be fine. It's all right, guys. Here we go. Verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Let's just pause there. Paul is reluctantly speaking about himself. He's not sure if actually it's going to be effective. What will be gained from it, he says. He's doing it with hesitancy, and he's doing it with humility. Hesitancy, as we can see, he's actually speaking in the third person. Did you see that? And it can be a little confusing. Is he talking about someone else or is he talking about himself? All commentators agree that he's talking about himself in the third person. Did you notice that he says, I know of a man? And he does it with humility because actually what he's disclosing here, he hasn't actually shared with anyone. It's the first time he mentions this. He says it was 14 years ago that he was caught up to the heavens, the third heaven, Whether in the body or out of the body, he's not quite sure. 
And he's very clear that God knows. God knows all things. So what, what is this all about? What is he talking about? Well, there's been lots of speculations. What we do know is that when he references the third heaven, it can only be the place where the glory of God is revealed. The only way we can deduce that is that we know that comparing Scripture with Scripture, we come out to this conclusion that the first heavens are the skies. You know, where the birds and planes fly, that's the first heavens. The second heavens would be the, the domain of the moon and the stars and the galaxies. And then beyond that second heaven would be the third heaven where God himself dwells. So this gives us some remarkable insight. You, you, you're telling me that Paul went there? <laughs> And which is why he says, I'm not quite sure if it was in the body or out of the body. Now, now we're not, we don't know. Paul doesn't know. Only God knows. The point is, something happened there. He was party. He was, he was aware of visions and revelations. He, he received insight and wisdom and knowledge, that which he doesn't want to share. He, he saw insights into the mysteries of God, into the glory of God, that is beyond comprehension. And so even Paul himself is not disclosing everything other than it was glorious. Now, why is he sharing this? This isn't isolated. This isn't boasting for his own sake. This isn't an ego trip. Paul is not on an ego trip trying to boast of his experiences. No, no, here's the reason he's doing this. Because in light of this experience, God does something. So we pick it up in verse 7. He goes on after telling us about this experience. Verse 7. So, there's the, there's the transition, the so. So, in light of everything, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, many of us are familiar with these verses. These are verses you might have on a coffee cup. It might be on your fridge. It might just be something that you personally are holding on to because of a struggle or because of a pain or because of some trauma in your own life. This is a verse that you've clung to, and rightly so. The rest of the chapter is a continuation of the argument he made in chapter 11. So we're not going to revisit that because it's the same argument. But we need to dig deep into what is he saying here. And when we look at this passage, especially these last few verses, here's what I want you to be on the lookout for. How did Paul deal with this ongoing nagging pain in his life and ministry? Because how he dealt with it is how we should deal with it. When, when we have nagging pains and, and, and troubles and trials in our lives, we can take some advice from, from how Paul deals with it. 
And so what we see here in 2 Corinthians 12 is that, that it speaks directly to the heart of some of the biggest questions Christians have. And that is, where is God when I suffer? Where is he? Is he aware? Is he absent? These are some of the questions that are right on top of our minds when we go through trials and troubles. Why? Why is this happening to me? Paul asks the same question. How should we respond when we suffer? And so we're going to consider it under three key headings. The first one we're going to talk about is providence. Then we're going to talk about prayer. And then we're going to talk about powerful grace. So the first one is providence. This is a, a word that is an English word. It's, it's not uh, Latin or Greek or anything like that, but it's not commonly used. It's a technical word, and it's a technical word for a reason. And so this whole point will be explaining what do we mean by providence. But let's first see chapter, uh, sorry, verse 7. He, he, he argues that all of this is under the providence of God. So, so he says, so, so because of these revelations, because I was caught up into the third heaven, and because of this privileged position I have, God does something. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now the big question, I know you, this is on the edge, you're on the edge of your seat, I know the big question is, what was the thorn? What is the thorn? Well, a couple of things we, we, that we do know. What we do know is that Paul, Paul didn't like the thorn, right? Uh, he, he wasn't happy with the thorn. He was uncomfortable. It was, it was nagging. It was something that was regular. It was something that was recurring, and it was distressing. We still don't know what it is, though, right? And he wanted it gone, he definitely wanted it gone. He wasn't rejoicing in the pain. He wasn't rejoicing in the recurring distress that it was bringing him. But we still don't know what it is. And, and to be honest, commentators are all over the map. They're all over the show on this. And, and no one really knows because Scripture doesn't tell us. Some would argue that it was poor eyesight. Some would argue that it was some kind of physical pain. Some would argue it was some form of illness or disability. Some would argue that it was the guilt of his past life. Some would say, no, it's the false teachers. That's the context in which he's speaking, that they were a pain in his side. It could be all of those or none of them. But the more pressing question, I think, is not what was the thorn, but why. That is the one that I think is more difficult to answer. Why? Why would God do this? Why the thorn? Well, let's think through this, this, this verse a little more. Let, let's have a quick English lesson. What we see is the object. The object is the thorn, right? The verb, the verb is was given me, right? So we got the thorn is the object. The, the verb is was given me. The agency is the messenger of Satan. And the subject is God, now, this can present a bit of a dilemma for us. It can present a bit of a dilemma because what we see, the conclusion is that the thorn was given to Paul by God through the agency of Satan. Let's be clear, it was not Satan's plan. 
Satan was the means by which God was accomplishing something. Why would Satan want to humble Paul? He doesn't. What does Satan want to do? He wants to keep him proud. He wants him to boast about himself and be conceited and arrogant. No, no. This was God's design, and he gave it to Paul because God was concerned about Paul's humility. That is very clear. So the conclusion is, in God's divine providence, in the secret counsels of God's mind, which we don't have full access to, it's called the providence of God, he is using Satan as a tool to keep Paul from becoming proud. The same God, here's the conclusion, the same God who gave Paul these glorious revelations is the same God who gives Paul the thorn. Why? We still haven't answered it. Well, the text does answer it. So, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul is content, yet concerned. Paul says it twice. The reason why God gives him the thorn, he says it at the beginning of verse 7 and at the end of verse 7. He says it twice. To keep me from becoming conceited, from becoming arrogant, from, from boasting. Now you might think, but how? In what way? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how. Imagine Paul and Timothy and Titus, they're hanging out, and they're like, hey, let's go on another mission trip. And, and Timothy says, Yo, I've got the perfect evangelism strategy. And he tells Titus and Paul, he says, yes, the evangelism. And then Titus says, no, 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 I've got a better evangelism strategy. And Titus shares his strategy. And then Paul's like, no, no, I, let me tell you what, I don't think any of those will work. Let me tell you about this evangelism. And Titus is like, no, I don't think so. And Timothy says, no, I don't think so. And so there's a stalemate. And what does Paul do? He says, well, which of you have been to the third heaven? Trump card. Any of you been to the third heaven recently? You see, what we see here is God's design that we can't always fully comprehend, but God in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite power orders all things for his glory and the good of us. And sometimes we don't know really what's good for us. And so the definition, one of the best definitions is in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We read this. It says, concerning providence, God the creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence, there it is, to the end for which they were created. Not only do we see this in this passage, but we learn this from the life of Job, don't we? We learn this not only from the life of Job, but from the life of Jesus, from the life of Peter. Do you remember Peter in Luke 22? Luke 22 is interesting because Jesus comes to Peter and he says to Peter, hey, Pete, Satan desires to have you, to sift you as wheat. Remember that in Luke 22? 
And I can imagine Peter was like, okay, Jesus, I'm pretty sure you said no, right? And the Lord Jesus says to Pete, sorry, I said yes. I said yes, because when he's finished with you, you'll be a better man. What? Jesus, you didn't say no to Satan who wants to sift me? And Jesus says, no, I said yes. It's a similar situation with Job. It's a similar situation with Joseph. It's a similar situation with Jacob. And we could go on to tell you about Peter and Paul and even Christ on the cross. In all of these events, Satan, hear me, is merely God's servant, which is what divine providence is. And we don't always understand it, and we can't always make sense of it, but there is good And there is a good and gracious God who is ordering all things for our good and for his glory. Sometimes pains and struggles and thorns come to test us, come to humble us. They come to reveal sin. They come to awaken us to to the lure of worldly things. They give us hope for eternity and they produce character in us. So we could list the things that they're good for. The great Charles Spurgeon said this, God is too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind. You might go, but is that, is that the, 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 the nature of a loving God? And I would say, absolutely, it's the nature of a loving God. Because the love of God is not like a Hollywood love. It's not a fickle love. It's not a shallow love. It's not a superficial love. It's not a selfish love. It is a love that has a sovereign design for the best for his children. And the best for his children is that we become like Jesus. And sometimes the best way to make us more like Jesus is to send thorns. The great hymn writer, William Cooper, he said this, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We'll read the whole poem at the end. The second thing I want us to see is not just providence, but prayer. And there is no contradiction here. Verse 8, Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. What did you plead, Paul? that it should leave me. There's no doubt Paul didn't like it, whatever it was. But the effect of the thorn is clear, isn't it? What did it do? At a surface level, it drove Paul to earnest and persistent prayer, right? It caused him to run to the throne of grace. Anything that gets us on our knees before God surely is a blessing. And so God uses pain and hardship in the Apostle Paul's life, not only to humble him, which is the ultimate design, but actually to draw us to himself. I mean, throughout the New Testament, there is no other time in Paul's life where he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times. In other words, I went on three separate occasions, three separate occasions, and I pleaded with God for grace to take it away. That was his plea. His plea was not strengthen me. His plea was not sustain me, keep me. 
His plea was, God, get rid of it. I don't like it. Take it away. And what we can learn here is that's okay. We can pray like that. In our humanity, we don't understand God's design. We don't understand the mysteries of his providence. And so we can, in our humanity, be real with God and say, God, this sucks. It's terrible. I don't like what I'm going through. The heartache, the pain, the anxiety. God, please take it away. Notice that he doesn't engage in a battle with the messenger of Satan. Do you see that? Who does he go to? He goes to God. He doesn't go to the devil. He doesn't try and bind the devil. He doesn't try and loose the, 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 the spirit or whatever it might be. He's, he's not in some kind of spiritual warfare. You know, he really just goes to his father, who is sovereign over all things. And he prays in faith and he prays with persistence and he prays specifically. And you might think God didn't answer him, but God does answer him. How does he answer him? Point three, the last point. Powerful grace. Verse nine. But he said to me, there's the answer. God is going to answer Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what God said. God said that to him. He, he asked God, take it away. God said no. Sometimes when we pray, God says no. But I will do something else. And Paul's conclusion is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my thorns. What? Of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So God doesn't remove the pain or remove the trial, but what he does promise is to sustain him through it. But he said to me, on three occasions he would have said, but he said to me. And he went back and he said it to me again. And I went back and he said it to me again. And what did he say? My grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't promise him deliverance. God promises him endurance. He gives Paul relief, not by removing the problem, but by giving grace in the problem. Now, here's the, here's the deal breaker. What's implied, therefore, is what do you think about grace? What do you, what do you think about grace? When you, when you hear that and you go, when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, what do you think? Do you think like, is that all? Did, did, Paul, did Paul lean back in his chair and go, what a bummer. Is that all? I mean, surely you could give me some more that will help me, you know, but not so, not so. Why? Because Paul understands the might of grace. Paul understands the weight of grace. Paul understands the wonder of grace. Paul has a high view of grace. If he had a small view of grace, he would have been like, is there anything else? Is there anything else you want to contribute? No, no. For Paul, this is Incredible. This is the best answer he could ever have had. My grace. Whose grace? 
God Almighty's grace. This isn't just any grace. This isn't your neighbor's grace or your own grace. This is God's grace. My, my grace, he says, my grace, my, my own grace is going to be sufficient for you. The grace that upholds the universe, the grace that sustains everyone, the grace that gives life and breath to every human being, the grace that orders history, the grace that saves sinners from hell, that grace is sufficient for you. And Paul's conclusion is, hallelujah, I will boast all the more gladly in my thorn, in my weaknesses. J.R. Packer says this, the weaker we feel, the harder we lean on God. The harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually. This isn't just any grace. This is the grace of God, the supernatural, saving grace of God. We're not expected to love the pain. Hear me, we're not expected to love the pain. You can pray for it to go. But if it doesn't, you can expect grace. Expect it. Ask for it. He promised it. He never promised to deliver you from it, but he has promised to give you grace to endure it. I want to close. Charles Spurgeon said this. One day he was walking home along the Thames. He lived in London and he was walking along the Thames and, uh, and he had a really bad day. It was a rough, rough day and he was feeling down and depressed. And he thought of this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he says in his, in his writings, he says, and then immediately I, I thought I thought of myself like a little fish in the Thames, just a teeny little little fish in the Thames. And then he says this. He says, apprehensive, speaking as the fish, lest drinking so many pints of water in the river each day, he might drink the Thames dry. And hearing Father Thames say, drink away, little fish, for my stream is sufficient for you. See, the grace of God is a never-ending, ever-flowing, abundant, extravagant, lavish fountain from the very throne of grace. And so let me read the poem from William Cooper, the hymn. It's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. You may have heard of it if you've been around church circles for some time. It was written in 1774. And William Cooper writes, he says, God moves in mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. 
for God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Father, we may not understand all your ways, but in your good design, you have a purpose. You have a purpose to mold us, to shape us, to be more like Christ. And it's for this reason you allow things to come into our lives. Things that challenge us, things that burden us, things that even hurt us. Help us not to scan your work in vain. Help us not to judge you with our own feeble sense. But help us to trust you for your amazing grace. Your grace that is sufficient. Your grace that is powerful. Your grace that sustains and keeps and upholds. Which is the very power of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would trust in your sovereignty, that we would trust in your goodness, that we would trust in your wisdom. We thank you, God, that there are times where you do deliver by taking us out of the pain, and there are times when you do deliver by taking us through the pain. But you are always faithful, always trustworthy, always dependable. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we pray, Lord, that you would order our steps, that you would give us grace to endure, grace to persevere, grace to run the race, to finish the race strong. We thank you, Lord, that you love us too much to leave us as we are. And as a heavenly father, you discipline your children because you love us. And so mold us, Lord, we pray. Shape us. Make us more like Jesus. But be gracious. Be kind. Be merciful. Be quick, we pray. We thank you that you are a never-ending, ever-giving, inexhaustible, extravagant God, a God of all grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.